Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for lucky seven. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. There's nothing like getting a card or parcel in the post. So send from the heart and get 20 Christmas stamps for just €20. From onpost.com or your local post office. And don't forget, the last day for posting to Great Britain is Monday, December 19th. On Post, for your world. For more information, see onpost.com slash Christmas. Chris Coleman had a girlfriend that he loved and a high-paying job that he didn't want to lose. The only problem with that was that he also had a wife and two sons that didn't seem to fit into his future plans. He needed to get rid of them so he could start over with someone new. This is Monsters. Chris Coleman was born on March 20, 1977, the son of two pastors. His parents, Ron and Connie Coleman, were both pastors at a non-denominational Christian church in Chester, Illinois, about an hour and 20 minutes south of St. Louis, Missouri. Chris had two brothers, and Connie said that he was the quietest of the three. The Coleman family took religion very seriously. Chris and his brothers would often speak in tongues during church services, and Chris based most of his decisions on scripture. Once, when his parents went out of town, Chris got drunk, but he felt so guilty about it that he confessed to his high school basketball coach. Even though Chris refused to go hunting with his father as a child, he signed up for the United States Marine Corps right out of high school. A recruiter had come to his high school and convinced Chris that joining the Marines was the right path for him. He signed up to be a dog handler with the military police. In May of 1997, 22-year-old Chris was at a canine training center in San Antonio, Texas, when he met 21-year-old Sherry Weiss. Sherry was an MP with the U.S. Air Force. Three months later, Chris showed up at his parents' house in Chester and introduced them to Sherry. He claimed that Sherry was a friend who he was giving a ride to Chicago, a good five to six hours away. The next morning, Chris called his father and told him that he and Sherry had gotten married. He said that they just got caught up in the moment, but his parents would eventually realize that the marriage was because Sherry was pregnant. Throughout this case, Chris's parents are extremely supportive of Chris and seem almost resentful of Sherry. In one interview, Connie says that she wasn't impressed with Sherry when they first met. I think they blame her for the premarital sex, which led to the pregnancy, which then led to marriage. It also didn't help that Sherry had been raised Catholic, and her beliefs weren't very strong. Even though she became born-again Christian, Ron and Connie still judged her harshly, believing that she had trapped Chris. Since Chris had a child on the way, he wanted to find a job that would keep his family secure and would afford them a nice life. That's when he began working in the security department for international televangelist Joyce Meyer. This was not the first time Joyce had met Chris, though. How long have you known him? Since he was a little boy. And how was that? Uh, his parents came to some conferences that I did over in Illinois. I did a weekly meeting over there, and his mother came to it, brought him with him. 
Now, at some point, did he become a pl an employee of Joyce Meyer's ministry? Yes, he did. And about when was that? Probably about 1998. Okay. So, and through 2009, he was with you about 11 years. Is yes. that correct? Yeah. What kind of employee was he? What What was his uh, responsibilities there? He was in the security department. Did was he in general security? Uh, did he move up through the ranks? What happened with that? If I remember correctly, he started in general security, and then he became um, the supervisor of that department. And then uh, when a personal security person that I had left our employ, we offered Chris that job, and he took it. And what did that, that job entail then? Did he travel with you? He traveled with us when we did conferences, when we did speaking engagements, and when we went out of the country and did crusades in, in other countries. I don't know if anybody has told Joyce this before, but I don't think crusades is really the best term for her ministry traveling overseas to preach. Just saying. As one of Joyce's personal security guards, Chris would travel with her everywhere she went. She said the ministry would travel outside of the country two to three times a year, had 13 conferences in the U.S. each year, and then she did speaking engagements on top of that. So Chris had a pretty busy traveling schedule, but he was making over $100,000 a year, which was nearly double the average household income for the area in 2009. This allowed Sherry to stay at home and raise the kids. They had had their first son, Garrett, in 1998, and their second son, Gavin, in 2000. Joyce Meyer Ministries was based out of St. Louis, Missouri, so the Colemans moved to the quiet suburb of Columbia, Illinois. People described Columbia as the place where you don't have to worry about crime. Crime happened across the river in St. Louis, but not in Columbia. The people in the Coleman's neighborhood felt safe and the boys played outside with the other kids. A detective sergeant with the Columbia Police Department lived right across the street from the Coleman's. While there, the couple started attending Destiny Church in West St. Louis. Sherry began working at the church, organizing fundraisers, trivia nights, and parties. In 2008, Chris and Sherry's relationship started to show signs of fatigue. Chris's new position made him start acting cocky. He shaved his head because he said it made him look tougher. Chris talked to Joyce about his concerns with his relationship with Sherry. Uh, how were you aware that they were having marital problems? She talked to my son, Daniel. And did he relate that to you? He told me so I could talk to Chris about it. And did you, in fact, talk to the defendant about the situation? I did. And just generally, what was that conversation? He said that, you know, that they were having issues, that um, Sherry had told Daniel that... Uh, I'm going to object. Okay. <laughs> Sherry Coleman told anybody. Okay. Well, my son Daniel told me. <laughs> okay. My son Daniel told her regarding the situation. Uh, although, well. what, although what the defendant told you, you could tell us. Uh, what was your conversation with the defendant okay. about the problem? What he told me is that he felt that Sherry was very controlling, that no matter what he did, she wasn't happy, and uh, that they just in general, you know, were not getting along, and that he was just really tired of it. And uh, at that point, I asked him if, you know, they'd be willing to get some marriage counseling from a pastor that we have at our office, and right away he said yes, they were willing to do that, which they did do. Do you know about when that was that he talked to you about that? It was in the fall, 2008. 
Chris and Sherry began seeing a counselor at Joyce Myers Ministries, and during his police interview, he claimed it was working and that everything was awesome with their relationship. That wasn't the case, according to Sherry's friends. One friend said that Sherry had cried to her about Chris wanting a divorce and telling her he didn't love her. Sherry said that he would put on a nice face for the counselor, then when they got home, he would start treating her like shit again. Neighbor and friend Vanessa Rigorix said that in January of 2009, Sherry told her that she and Chris had sex, which was a very rare occurrence. Afterward, Chris told Sherry not to think that that meant he loved her. The reality was that Chris wanted a divorce, but he didn't want to initiate it. In most Christian religions, divorce is frowned upon. Marriage is supposed to be a union until death, and choosing to break that holy union was not viewed positively, especially for someone like Joyce Meyer. Joyce had said in her deposition that a divorce didn't mean a person would lose their job. If an employee's spouse wanted a divorce and there was nothing the employee could do about it, they wouldn't be fired. Chris knew that he could lose his job if he chose to get a divorce, so he started acting awful to Sherry in order to get her to divorce him, but it wasn't working. Sherry refused to give up on their marriage. Sherry was born on July 3, 1977, to Donald Weiss and Angela DeShico in Berwyn, Illinois. She had one brother. She attended high school in Largo, Florida, and was best friends with a woman named Tara Lintz. After graduating high school, where Sherry joined the Air Force, Tara stayed in Florida and started working at a gentleman's club. She eventually began working as a cocktail waitress at the Derby Lane Dog Track in St. Petersburg. Chris had known Tara through Sherry, and on a trip to Florida, most likely for work, he and Tara connected, and sparks flew. They started seeing each other in secret in November of 2008, and he would fly Tara out to places he was traveling for work. She said in an interview that he had flown her to Hawaii and Phoenix so they could spend time together. Chris had written in a document on his computer that November 5th, 2008 was the day that Tara had changed his life. Coincidentally, on February 14th, Chris received the first of a number of death threats against him and his family. As personal security for Joyce Meyer, Chris was used to dealing with threats. People can get a little crazy when it comes to famous people. Then you throw religion into the mix and there's no telling what you're going to see. Joyce had a security team for this very reason. Getting a death threat was nothing new to her, but getting a death threat targeted at one of her employees was. Did you ever become aware of any threats that this defendant said he had received against himself or his family? Yes, he told me about some. The defendant personally told you that? Yes. What did he tell you? What, what threats did he report? He told me that he had gotten an email... Uh, threatening his family if he did not stop working for me. And then he told me that um, somebody started putting these threats in his mailbox, at which point I think he became more concerned about them since that meant somebody knew where he lived. He told me that they had taken the information to the police in Belleville, and that he also had a detective that lived across the street from him, and that they were going to make arrangements to put a camera there on his mailbox to see if they could see who was actually doing it. And you said Belleville. He actually lived in Columbia, is okay, that right? Well, Columbia, yeah. yeah. That's I'm sorry. Uh, when do you think that was, when you became aware of the threats from him? I think it was probably sometime late March or in April. Of 2009, yeah. then? Is it spring? Okay. Uh, to your knowledge, had any other employees ever been singled out in that way? No. 
Did you have other employees that uh, provided security as this defendant did? One other one, yes. And uh, there wasn't any threats or anything to that person? No. Hmm. Nobody else that worked for Joyce had ever received a death threat before. It was just Chris. Someone had an issue with Chris's job, but no other person working for Joyce Meyer Ministries. Not even the one other person who had the same job as Chris. Right. Email threats came in from the email address destroychris at gmail.com saying, quote, Tell Joyce to stop preaching the bullshit. If I can't get Joyce, then I will get someone close to her. End quote. Then, in January of 2009, messages started getting hand-delivered to the mailbox at the Coleman's house. One message said, quote, Fuck you. Deny your God publicly or else. No more opportunities. Time is running out for your family. Have a good time in India, motherfucker. End quote. It's important to note that the word opportunities was misspelled. On April 27th, the last message would appear in the Coleman's mailbox. It read, Quote, Stop today or else. I know your schedule. You can't hide from me forever. I'm always watching. I know when you leave in the morning, and I know when you stay home. End quote. Chris's neighbor from across the street, Detective Sergeant Justin Barlow, learned about the threats and offered to set up a camera at his house. He set the camera up in his three-year-old son's bedroom, pointing directly at the front of the Coleman's property. Coincidentally, no more notes were left. In Chris's secret life, Tara was pressuring him to leave Sherry so they could get married and have a family of their own. She had given him an ultimatum that he needed to leave Sherry by May 4th. Chris agreed and told Tara that he would be serving Sherry with divorce papers on the 4th or the 5th. Chris knew full well that initiating a divorce in order to marry another woman would easily lead to his termination from Joyce Meyer Ministries. On May 5th, 2009, Chris can be seen on surveillance pulling out of his driveway at 5.43 a.m. He went to a local gym and worked out. At 6.23 a.m., he sent a text message to Sherry asking if she was up. He texted immediately after, telling her that he had five minutes left on cardio and then would be home soon. He texted her again at 6.27 saying, quote, Hello, are you up? End quote. Immediately followed by, quote, Time to get the kids up, end quote. At 6.43 a.m., Chris called Detective Barlow and told him that he couldn't get a hold of his family. He asked the detective if he would do a welfare check. He told him that he was about five minutes away. Barlow got dressed and called his dispatcher to request backup. He waited on the Coleman's front porch until Officer Jason Donjon showed up on the scene. Nobody was answering the front door, so Officer Donjon went around the back of the house where he found a basement window open with the screen removed. Detective Barlow called for more backup before he and Officer Donjon entered the house through the window. They worked their way from the basement up to the main floor of the house where they smelled fresh spray paint and saw graffiti written on the walls in bright red paint. The messages said, You have paid and punished. The messages continued as they ascended the stairs to the second story. Don John headed toward the master bedroom, and Barlow turned into one of the boys' rooms. The detective found the first boy, nine-year-old Gavin, who looked like he was sleeping peacefully in his bed, but his skin was gray and cold. Barlow checked the other boy's room and found 11-year-old Garrett in the same condition. The words, fuck you, written in red spray paint on the sheet that was over the boy's body some of the paint having oversprayed onto his skin. 
Officer Don John found 31-year-old Sherry deceased in her bed. She had a black eye and multiple ligature marks on her neck, making it apparent that she had put up a fight. Chris arrived at his house 13 minutes after he had called Detective Barlow. The detective informed his neighbor that his family didn't make it. They had been murdered. Chris never once asked how they died, and police were surprised that he never tried to go in and see his family. He was told to stay outside and just said, okay, and sat on the lawn, crying. An EMT thought he might be in shock, so he moved him into the ambulance where he could be monitored. They were joined by police chaplain Reverend Jonathan Peters, who would testify that Chris started beating his fist on the gurney when he was asked about the scratches on his arm. We'll be right back. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we're sad to announce that there's been a, uh, we're investigating a triple homicide here in the city of Columbia. Deceased at the home at 2854 Robert Drive is a female by the name of Sherry Coleman. She's 31 years old. And her two children, Garrett Coleman, who's 11 years old, and Gavin Coleman, who is 9 years old. The Columbia Police Department was called to this house this morning, just before 7 a.m., and they then discovered these bodies. And shortly after that, Chief Edwards felt it uh, his responsibility to give this investigation the most he could, so he activated and authorized the use of the major case squad. Since that time, we've gathered together with investigators, and we have around 25 investigators working this crime. Uh, the Illinois State Police is involved. They're continuing their efforts at the scene, and we have investigators currently working, working this homicide. The autopsies are being conducted as we speak, so we don't know what the cause of death is, but we do uh, believe that the manner of death is homicide. Well, this time is so early on, I don't want to speculate into any motive, and if I go into random, then that means it's, there's maybe a motive behind that. I really don't know. We just, we're following leads. We have leads in this case. We're following them. And, uh, you know, I would, I would just let everyone know that we're doing all we can to find out what happened in this house. Chris was eventually taken to the Columbia Police Station and questioned. Once there, he said that he was cold and asked for a blanket. And when they brought him one, he used it only to cover his arms. Detective Barlow thought it was strange. Not only was it warm in the building, but it seemed like Chris was trying to hide the scratches on his arms. When Barlow asked about the scratches, Chris told him that he thought he got them from when he was hitting the gurney in the ambulance. Except Reverend Peter said that they were already there when he started doing that. The investigators started asking him what he did that morning. Good, 5.30, went to the bathroom. Put these, these clothes here, got on, on, and uh, went to the bathroom. Basically got truck and left. And uh, drove off, I got to, well, where I was at, but called uh, Sherry to wake her up, get her going, and she didn't answer, of course. So I went on to to the gym, to the old gym, and over by Ronnie's Plaza in South County, and um, started working out. I texted her, text her some at some point. I might have even called her. You know, I don't remember. I could probably look at my phone if you want me to. Do you guys have? Do you guys have a home phone number too, or just cell phones? No, we just use cell phones. So I texted her, and then uh, she still didn't respond, and uh, probably now. Well, it had to have been, you know, 
call after six o'clock sometime when I text her or called her. I'm sure it's still on her phone the time it was. Okay. And uh, she didn't respond. It's not like her because the kids should have been up and stuff or getting up and going by then, I believe. And so um, I called her again. Called her again on the way back or when I was getting ready to leave. And um, uh, she didn't respond again. And it started getting a little concerned because it's not like her not to answer the phone. Sometimes she won't answer if she's in the shower, but she just calls me back right away. And so she didn't do that at all. And so that's when I called you. Chris said that he got up at 5.30, got dressed, used the bathroom, and left, which matches the surveillance video that caught him leaving that morning. When investigators asked him if he saw anything strange when he left, he told them that he had to slow down as he was backing out of his driveway for a passing car. He couldn't remember anything about the car other than it was a dark color. The problem is that if you watch the footage of Chris leaving his house that morning, he's not backing out, and he doesn't slow down for any car. This would be the first of his many lies. Obviously, the death threats that he had been receiving were at the front of everyone's minds. Someone had been threatening Chris's family and even claimed that they would be killed in their sleep. That started off as the main focus of the investigation. How many threats like that? I mean, up until November, have you ever gotten threats like that before? Um... No, people have been upset with me, but I haven't gotten anything. I mean, I've had people yell at me and cuss at me and everything else, but, you know, they sort of off the property and all that stuff, you know. He confirmed that the death threats had only started in November. The police don't know this yet, but they started nine days after he began his relationship with Tara. They also asked him if he had any spray paint in his house. He said that he didn't think so, and if he did, it would have been really old. That would turn out to be Chris's next lie. When Detective Carla Hine took a nasty spill resulting in a fractured leg, she spent her time behind a desk looking into Chris's credit card statements. It was discovered that on February 9, 2009, Chris had paid $3.77 for a 12-ounce can of Apple Red Rust-Oleum spray paint from Handyman True Value Hardware just over the river in St. Louis. Chris claimed to have no paint in his house unless maybe he had something really old lying around, except he bought a can of the exact same color spray paint just three months earlier. Hey, I'm a forgetful guy. I couldn't tell you everything I bought three months ago, but I can guarantee if I had bought a can of apple red spray paint and then had my family murdered and graffiti written on the walls with red spray paint, it's going to jog my memory of that purchase. Chris's parents have always adamantly believed that Chris is innocent, so much to the point that they've said some pretty insane things to explain away the evidence, but we'll get more into that later. Chris's father, Ron, said that Chris had purchased the spray paint to make a bullseye that he and the kids could use to shoot paintballs at. The killer must have grabbed it after he entered the house. That makes it seem even more like he should have remembered the paint. He had a specific reason he bought the red spray paint, but red graffiti and the police specifically asking him about spray paint doesn't help him recall the purchase? Right. Detectives had also learned that Chris had been communicating with Tara, and when they asked him about it, he sheepishly admitted to sending flirty texts back and forth with her, which he knew was wrong, but he denied having any type of affair. He claimed to have run into Tara at a Joyce Meyer conference in Florida, and the two began texting. Yet another lie from Chris. While Chris was being interviewed by detectives in Columbia, police in St. Petersburg, Florida, had tracked down Tara and were interviewing her at the same time. 
Tara told investigators that their relationship was much more than friends. She told them that they had a sexual relationship. She told them that he had flown her out to some of his work trips. She told them that they talked about getting married and that they had already discussed baby names. Tara explained how the pair had given each other promise rings and they wore them when they were together. Police on the scene knew that Sherry and the boys couldn't have only been dead for an hour. The bodies were gray, cold, and stiff. Pallor mortis is the first stage of death. It's when the skin loses color and turns more of a grayish color. That can start to happen almost immediately after death. Alger mortis is the second stage of death, and that's where the body starts to change temperature. The body temperature will decline steadily until it reaches the ambient temperature around it. The body's core will lose temperature slower than the skin, but it can take anywhere from 3 to 12 hours for a body to cool to the touch. Rigor mortis is the third stage of death and is caused by chemical changes in the muscles triggered by decomposition. Rigor mortis generally doesn't start for about 3 to 4 hours after death. It will then go away 2 to 8 hours after it sets in. An autopsy was performed by Dr. Michael Bodden, who had been the chief medical examiner in New York City and more recently starred on the HBO show Autopsy. Dr. Bodden was the chairman of the House Select Committee on Assassinations Forensic Pathology Panel that investigated the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. He's been hired to do numerous private autopsies, like that of Michael Brown and Aaron Hernandez. Since the Columbia police knew that there were inconsistencies with Chris's timeline based on what Barlow and Ron John had experienced on the scene, they knew they wanted a seasoned expert to examine the bodies. On May 19th, Dr. Bodden reported to the Columbia police that the time of death for Sherry and the boys was definitely earlier than 5 a.m. and probably closer to 3 a.m. on the morning of May the 5th. At the trial, Dr. Bodden was asked if there was any chance that the Colemans died after Chris left, and he answered, quote, This isn't even a close call. They had to have been dead before he left the house. End quote. On May 19, 2009, Chris Coleman was arrested for the murder of Sherry, Garrett, and Gavin Coleman. Once the investigation into Chris got into full swing, they collected Chris's two laptops, his cell phone, and they collected DNA from under Sherry's fingernails. On Chris's computer, there were X-rated videos of Chris and Tara, plus a document that was filled with info about his mistress. It listed her favorite things, account usernames and passwords, her height, eye color, size of her jeans, size of her bra and underwear, and the name of their future daughter, Zoe Lynn Coleman. It also listed the birthday of Tara's dog, Gizmo. This was the document where he'd written that Tara changed his life on November 5th of 2008. This is where Chris's parents' delusional behavior comes back into the picture. Ron and Connie Coleman were in so much denial that their son had done anything wrong that they didn't even believe he was wrong for having an affair. After Chris admitted to the affair, Ron explained it away like this. Tara was just meeting a need that Sherry at the time wasn't taken care of. And But I don't understand. Well, I mean, every man's got his desires and every man has to be respected. It's built into every man. You, If your wife or doesn't respect you, then you're going to find respect someplace else. So are you saying that Sherry was a bad wife? Just at that, just at that short, brief time, she had stepped back from doing her job as a wife. This is by far the most sickening, vile thing I've ever heard someone say about a victim. 
Not only is he talking about Sherry as if the affair was her fault, he's talking about women like their sole purpose is to service their husbands. This is why religion is destroying our world. And why does he keep talking about respect? Does he think that respect is another word for sex? What does respect from your spouse have to do with fucking a Floridian cocktail waitress? Ron and Connie Coleman were part of the problem with Chris and Sherry's relationship. They had made Chris feel so much shame about sex that he believed he had to marry Sherry when she got pregnant. It's not a healthy way to start a marriage. Then, when he wasn't happy with his shotgun marriage, their upbringing taught him that marriage was forever and that he couldn't initiate a divorce. He was having an affair, unlocking all of that repressed sexuality that his parents taught him was a sin, and the only way he could be free to be with Tara was to murder his family. They should be ashamed about the way they've talked about the victims in this case. It's no reason Chris turned out to be a monster. He has a father that says shit like this. Both Chris and Ron claimed in interviews that Chris was actually getting ready to leave Tara, except he wasn't. During her interview, Tara told investigators that Chris had texted her the morning of the murders after he got back home. The text read, quote, Call you when I can. I'm all right. End quote. Seriously? He was all right? His wife and sons were just murdered, but he was all right. Then Chris texted her again while they were both being questioned by police, a thousand miles or 1,600 kilometers apart. I got a text. I know. You know that. <laughs> um, he texted me. I just thought I'd tell you. He, he just texted this man. What do you want now? Just said he was thinking about me and that the wake was at three tomorrow. So Chris is in an interrogation room at the police station answering questions about the murder of his wife and sons. And what is he thinking about? Tara. And we're supposed to believe that he was about to leave her? Right. A friend told investigators that Sherry had found out about the affair. One day while they were at Sherry's house, she opened up her laptop and said, Do you want to see the woman who's having an affair with my husband? And showed her a picture of Tara. Sherry said she would refuse to get a divorce, and then she told her friend, quote, If anything happens to me, Chris did it, end quote. This was an eerie prediction from Sherry. It's almost as if she knew that refusing a divorce was backing Chris into a corner that he might use violence to get out of. Forensic examiners eventually discovered that the death threat emails had been sent from Chris's computer. Not only that, but the notes that had been left in his mailbox were also written on that same computer. They also noticed that one of the death threats had the word opportunity spelt wrong. It was spelt O-P-P-U-R-T-U-N-I-T-Y. And when they looked through other documents that Chris had written for work, they found that he always misspelled that word the same way. A handwriting expert was brought in to compare the messages spray-painted on the interior of the house with a handwriting sample that was provided by Chris. The expert found that the writing in the graffiti matched the writing samples. Police were also able to analyze text messages on Sherry's phone and found that she had vented to friends that Chris wanted a divorce and that he had told her that she and the kids were ruining his career. They also found it suspicious that there was no record of Chris having ever called or texted Sherry to wake her up prior to the morning of May 5th. Why did Chris suddenly feel like he needed to call and text Sherry that morning to make sure she got up? She had spent a decade taking care of the children and had no problem getting herself up in the past. It was one of many questions that arose while police were investigating the case. 
They also wondered why there were a number of unlocked windows in the Coleman home when they discovered the bodies on the morning of May 5th. The window they entered through was open and had the screen removed, making it look like an intruder entered the house, but there was no sign of forced entry, so it seemed like whoever it was just opened an unlocked window. There were other windows in the house that were also unlocked. Why would a guy, one who works in personal security at that, leave windows unlocked in his house during a time that he's receiving death threats directly to his home? Threats from someone who had a personal problem with Chris due to his job, but no one else at that same employer. The case just didn't make any sense. We'll be right back. Eventually, the DNA results came back from the lab, and unfortunately, they were inconclusive. Now, Chris went on to claim, and I believe he still does, that the DNA is from an unknown source. He even tried to get a new trial due to his lawyer never bringing up the unknown DNA from the scene. The problem is that Chris doesn't understand the DNA results. The DNA provided a partial profile that matched Chris. It was just a small enough profile that it could have also matched someone else who had a similar DNA profile to Chris. So it matched Chris, just not enough to legally say it was a match. His lawyer was smart enough to know that the DNA being inconclusive didn't mean it excluded Chris. The problem with Chris is, like a lot of other murderers who try to maintain their innocence, I'm looking at you, Chris Porco, they think they're smarter than the authorities. Chris claimed that someone must have hacked into his computer, but all that did was narrow down the suspect pool. The death threats included personal information and were eventually delivered directly to his house, which I believe Chris did to make the threat seem scarier. He mentioned a trip to India in one threat and said, quote, I know your schedule, end quote, in another. So not only were police looking for someone who had access to Chris's computer, knew his schedule and where he lived, but the killer needed to have a similar DNA profile. At this point, if it wasn't Chris, the most likely suspect would be one of his relatives. The trial started on April 25th, 2011. Detective Barlow and Officer Don John testified about the condition of the bodies when they were found, cold and stiff, a condition that would have taken more than an hour. Dr. Bodden testified about the time of death, definitely before 5 a.m., but probably closer to 3 a.m. He also testified about how the murders were intimate and sustained. Each victim would have had to be strangled for four to five minutes each, which was a very personal and intimate act, not something you usually see in a murder by a stranger. In a later interview, Chris explains that you can use a different formula to calculate time of death that would actually put the time of death at 5.47 a.m., just minutes after he left for the gym. This is Chris trying to convince people that he can calculate time of death better than a very experienced forensic pathologist. Then there's the fact that the bodies would not be cold and stiff after just one hour. He's grasping for straws and refuses to let go. Joyce Meyer gave a videotaped deposition earlier that was played in the court. She testified that Chris's job could have been affected by his relationship status. Though he wouldn't have been fired for getting a divorce, he definitely would have if it was revealed that he was having an affair. If he would have been having an adulterous affair while he was still married, then it could have definitely affected his job. Okay. Were there persons over the years that were terminated in situations like that? We had situations where they were, yes. And in fact, 
he was married uh, during the period of time that he worked for you, married yes. to Sherry Coleman, correct? Yes. Were there other persons uh, who had adulterous affairs while married uh, whose employment was terminated at Joyce Meyer Ministry? Yes. For that reason? Yes. Okay. Uh, now, I have to ask you about the distinction here. What if it was a divorce as opposed to an adulterous affair? Each situation is handled totally separately based on the circumstances. We have many people that work for us that have been divorced, and um, a person is not necessarily, do they lose their job because they get a divorce. It wouldn't have been the divorce so much as the, the immorality. So, for instance, if a person in your employment, uh, if their spouse filed for divorce against them, uh, and perhaps they had little control over that, you might leave them in your employment? That's oh, a possibility? Certainly. Okay. And on the other end of the spectrum, if a person was having an adulterous affair and then filed for divorce from their spouse to be with that person, then their employment may have been terminated? May have been, yes. Okay. Do you think there was any situations of that in the past where someone was actually terminated under those kind of circumstances? I believe so. Okay. Joyce also explained that in retrospect, she believed that some of Chris's behavior at work had been suspicious in the months leading up to the murders. She said he had been less attentive to his duties and was forgetting things. After Joyce, the prosecution presented the one witness everyone was waiting for, Tara Lintz. Tara initially refused to testify, but was finally ordered to by a judge in St. Petersburg. It was clear that she wasn't interested in cooperating as her answers were short and matter-of-fact. The most notable detail about the mistress was that she was still wearing the promise ring that she had received from Chris before he murdered his family for her. She was asked if Chris professed his love for her, to which she answered yes. She was asked how often she and Chris communicated, and she said, quote, all the time, constantly, end quote. She explained to the jury that Chris had told her that he was going to present Sherry with divorce papers on May 4th, but then he claimed that there had been a typo that needed to be fixed, so he was going to do it on the 5th. This was a detail that Chris would later claim was a lie he told Tara. In an interview after the trial, Chris said that he told Tara that, but was actually planning to break things off with her. The DNA examiner was called in to explain that the inconclusive result didn't rule Chris out but the most damning evidence came from the computer forensic examiner. He first testified about the hundreds of photos found on Chris's computer, his phone, Tara's computer, and her phone. Images of them hugging or dressed up like a couple going out for a night out. Then the sexually explicit stuff that included naked pictures and videos of Chris masturbating. He was then recalled later to testify about the email account being created on Chris's computer, as well as the emails themselves and the death threats that were left in the Coleman's mailbox. When the defense had a chance to cross-examine the witness, he suggested that someone could have used software to gain remote access to the computer. The forensic tech responded, quote, I don't know of any technology that would remote control a computer that is off, end quote. See, this was another one of Chris's suggestions. A suggestion he made because he's too stubborn to admit that he killed his family and thinks he's smarter than everyone. This may come as a surprise to you, but he isn't. The computer that was used to send the emails and write the notes was a Dell laptop, one that Chris claimed that he never took with him when he went out of town. He was adamant that someone used his laptop to send him death threats. When no evidence could be found that anyone else had ever accessed the computer physically, he claimed that they must have hacked in remotely. 
The problem was that the computer had been off before the messages were created. So someone would have had to be able to hack into a computer that was off, which is just not possible. Everything that Chris says to try to explain away the evidence against him turns out to be complete garbage. The prosecution saw the can of Apple Red spray paint that was purchased by Chris as a smoking gun, but the defense tried to use it to prove Chris's innocence. They claimed, and Chris's horrible, horrible father will regurgitate this information if you ask him, that you could not possibly use that much spray paint and not end up with any on you. The tiny mist droplets would get somewhere, and police searched all over Chris, even took a hair sample and didn't find any paint. Well, I guess you're free to go, Mr. Coleman. Sorry for the inconvenience. Get the fuck out of here. He went to the gym afterwards. He could have spent his entire time there in the shower, scrubbing every inch of his body. He could have changed his clothes, tossed whatever he wore while committing the crime in the garbage, and been done. On top of that, the time of death was probably closer to 3 a.m., which means he had two hours to put on a disposable paint suit, spray paint the walls, then take off the suit, shower, change his clothes, and then go to the gym, where he could have showered again. I'm sure there were close to a hundred dumpsters between his house and the gym where he could have tossed whatever clothes he wore during the crime, the cord he used to strangle his family, and the paint can. It's one thing to claim something like this when somebody is caught in the act and wouldn't have time to clean up, but I hear arguments like this all the time. There was no blood on them. Yeah, there was a day between the murder and the time they were arrested, so, you know, shower. So, if we're to believe Chris... He's innocent, and all of the evidence that points towards him is either a coincidence or he's being framed by a very specific person. It's another case with all circumstantial evidence, but at what point do those circumstances become so unlikely to be a coincidence that we're past a reasonable doubt? He lied about having to slow down for a car driving down his street. This seems like the most innocent, but to me it speaks pretty loud. He has no reason to lie about that except to place suspicion on someone else. He was adamant about waking up Sherry that morning, but police couldn't find any other time Chris had texted and or called Sherry in the morning to make sure she was awake. It's small, but it just adds to everything else. Why did he need to do that specifically that morning? He lied about having an affair, which makes him look bad and shows his ability to lie. He lied about the paint, which tells me he didn't want the detectives to think there was any connection between him and red paint. He could have easily said, I bought some red spray paint for a project with my son, but the fact that he claimed it to have no paint makes him look guilty. The fact that he even bought the paint. It seems unlikely that someone would commit this crime the way Chris claims, but even more unlikely that they would just happen to find a can of red spray paint and decide to paint messages on the walls. Chris bought that paint to use in the crime. The time of death is pretty solid. Experienced law enforcement knew that the body temp and rigor mortis timing was off, and a highly sought, very experienced forensic pathologist confirmed. The emails were sent from his computer, and the threats were written on his computer. Could someone have used his computer while he was away? It's possible, but like all circumstantial evidence, when you pair that with the misspelling, the paint and the time of death, is it likely? Nope. And then, of course, we get to that misspelling. One of the death threats had O-P-P-U-R-T-U-N-I-T-Y, and all of Chris's other written work had that word misspelled the same way. We're whittling away the chance that the crime was committed by someone else. 
The spray-painted messages matched the handwriting sample that Chris provided. He told Tara that he was serving Sherry with divorce papers on May 5th, the same day that his family was killed, and the fact that that was all a lie. It shows that he was backed into a corner and desperate to find a way out. Finally, the DNA under Sherry's fingernails came back as a partial match to Chris, and he had scratches on his arms. It wasn't enough to definitely say it was Chris, but now we're narrowing down our suspect pool to someone who had a similar DNA profile to Chris. What are the chances that Sherry had DNA under her fingernails that matched Chris, and Chris had scratches on his arms? In order for Chris to be innocent, the killer is someone who hates Joyce Meyer, who wants her to stop preaching, and is threatening to kill the family of only one of her two personal security guards in order to get her to stop. He has a similar DNA profile to Chris, knows where he lives, and knows insider details about his work schedule, is able to access his computer while Chris is out of town, misspells the word opportunity the same way, and has similar handwriting. Outside of that being super unlikely already, this mythical doppelganger breaks into his house when he knows Chris will be at the gym, through a window that just happens to be unlocked, murders Chris's family, finds a can of spray paint in the house and decides to leave messages on the walls before grabbing the recorder from Chris's security system and climbing back out the window and disappearing without being seen by any other surveillance. Then, Chris just happens to be overly concerned about Sherry waking up that morning and completely forgets about the bright red spray paint that he had purchased months before. Oh, and the respected, experienced medical examiner is wrong about the time of death. It could be that. Or, Chris just killed his family so he could start a new family with Tara and not lose his job. Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is usually the correct one. On May 5, 2011, exactly two years after the murder of Sherry, Garrett, and Gavin, Chris Coleman was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder. The following day, the jury determined that Chris was eligible for the death penalty, but then Chris waived his right to jury sentencing and made the decision solely the judge's responsibility. Due to the death penalty being abolished less than two months later, the judge sentenced Chris to three life sentences without the possibility of parole. He then filed for post-conviction relief in 2018, claiming that he had ineffective counsel because they didn't bring the inconclusive DNA results or the unknown fingerprints up during the trial. Like I said before, the DNA was inconclusive, but it was still a partial match for Chris, so it really wasn't going to help him. He also cited that the jury ended up seeing some pictures that had incorrect dates on them, which led them to believe he was lying about when he claimed his relationship with Tara started. Judge Stephen McLean reviewed all of the court documents and told Chris that he was confident that the verdict was proper, just, and constitutionally sufficient. He denied the motion and ended Chris's bid for post-conviction relief. When people asked about his motive, it was clear that he wasn't happy with the life he had and wanted to start over with someone new. When he created the email address, destroychris at gmail.com, it seemed that what he really wanted was to destroy the current Chris so he could be a different Chris. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. 
The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on, like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Serta, delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see certaireland.ie.